Well, I remember seeing it when I was little. It was this weird, crummy, boxy looking vehicle and it was cheaply built and it was built for the masses. Unfortunately, that's actually how one of these major car companies in North America got its rebirth during the 80s is building these crummy, crappy cars that are literally just throwaway pieces of crap to get people into the doors. We're talking about the economy built vehicles. Economy vehicles have been here for decades and even today economy vehicles exist in our marketplace and they are required for the automotive marketplace but unfortunately a lot of car companies today have lost their way in when it comes to the economy built vehicles of the world they're trying to get rid of the bottom line marketplace because it's not profitable for them but in a sense every major automaker out there originally had to start with an economy product today we're going to take a look at some of the biggest players to use economy to build quality. Welcome back to Autolux Podcast. I am your host, as always, the doctor to the automotive industry, Mr. Everett J, coming to you from our main website at autolux.net. If you haven't been there, stop by, check it out, read some of our ratings, check out some of our reviews, find some information on our Corporate Links website, and take a look at our year-end ratings, which were just released in early January. We have rated well over 500 vehicles from across the globe on our coveted Autolux rating system to see who is the best design automotive product in the world and who has the worst who won our coveted autolux a plus award of design excellence for 2024 and who won the automotive rusty as the worst design for 2024 find it all on the autolux.net website the autolux podcast is brought to you by ecom entertainment group and distributed by podbeam.com if you'd like to get in touch with us send us an email over at email at autolux.net so like I said in the beginning, economy vehicles. Economy vehicles have been here for generations. And essentially, ever since Henry Ford first pioneered the Model T in getting people into the driver's seat, economy vehicles had been there. Because essentially, that's what the original Model T was. It was the first economy-built vehicle. Not to say that the Model T was just a big, horrible piece of crap. It was actually built for the people so that anybody can fix it and drive it and use it as a replacement for their horse and buggy. Yeah, if you got tired of cleaning up all that horse shit and taking care of this big beast and you just wanted to park something and walk away from it, the Model T was it. It was the economy vehicle. It was cheap and easy to build and cheap and easy to fix. In today's world, the economy vehicle is something completely different than the original concept of the Model T. Sure, we build them in mass quantities to keep their price volume down, but they're built of cheaply manufactured parts to keep those costs down. Doesn't necessarily mean they're easy to fix and easy to maintain. A lot of economy vehicles are essentially just throwaway products. Looking back to the 1980s, the K-Car and Caravan, which saved Chrysler Corporation during the fallout of the 80s, was essentially the original shit-for-brains economy vehicle. Yes, the K-Car was one of those vehicles that you would do minor repairs to. Let's fix the brakes, I'll change the alternator, I'll put a new battery in it. But when it came to any problems with the engine or transmission, you did not even fix it or touch it because it was a throwaway vehicle. Now, at the beginning of the podcast, I was talking about a vehicle that I had originally seen, this boxy, boring, bland piece of crap that I originally saw when I was a kid. And by the time I went to college, the company that built this product was becoming a better quality product for the marketplace. I still didn't believe in them because I still saw them as their cheap, horribly economy-produced vehicles. And then today, that same company builds luxury products. Hell, they build luxury and even premium products 
off that standard line that they originally sold as the economy pieces of crap to get people in the door. That company I'm talking about is Hyundai Motor Corporation. Hyundai took a page essentially from Toyota Motor Corporation, who in turn took a page from Henry Ford. Henry Ford started the wave of economy built vehicles. He wanted to build vehicles for the masses, but he wanted to find the cheapest, easiest way to build them. So he used less parts, he used cheaper materials, and he used a manufacturing method where he could build these vehicles in mass quantities and easily be manufactured along a moving assembly line that anybody without half a brain can literally put together along this production line. Now back in those days he built vehicles that people can easily fix. You broke a spindle on your wheel, you could fix it yourself. Now not to say that if you cracked your block you could fix it yourself, but most people were pretty handy back in the early 1900s and could fix basic issues with vehicles. How the original Henry Ford Model T came with a tool set that allowed you to fix nearly every single major issue that arose with your vehicle. And with all the, all the electronics that are in vehicles today, the Model T was the epitome of easy to operate and cheap to operate vehicles for the road. Now this was utilized in the birth of so many major car companies. Louis Chevrolet saw this as well and wanted to duplicate what Henry Ford did and built his Chevrolet Motor Company. Until the follow when William C. Durant purchased the company from underneath Louis Chevrolet and Louis Chevrolet literally died a penniless man not gaining the mass exposure to his main concept. Unfortunately that, that did happen to him. But what Henry Ford had pushed into the automotive world was being showcased. You gotta remember, Henry Ford didn't create the moving assembly line and didn't try and bring down the original cost of the vehicles. That was actually Oldsmobile that pushed more mass production into the automotive industry. They brought along the moving assembly line to try and bring down the cost of their products compared to vehicles from the likes of Mercedes. And hell, even Renault, they brought down the cost for these vehicles. They built the entry-level market. But as time went on, and as we've all seen through our podcast about the the divisions of the big three, multitude of divisions was created for every major price point of the marketplace. But by the 1950s, this price point had been whittled down to just three entry-level products, premium products, and luxury products. Yeah, they still had their own price point avenues, but you still needed your entry-level product. There were still economy vehicles in the marketplace trying to make a name for themselves. Hitler actually had the idea of building a vehicle for his people, and together, Ferdinand Pierce, they built the original concept of the people's car, the Volkswagen Beetle. Go back and listen to our podcast about Beetle Love, and you'll understand where this all comes from. We take you back through the history of the Volkswagen Beetle, and how the Volkswagen Beetle was conceptualized, but yes, the Gefeira, Hitler himself, but was created by Ferdinand Pierce, who would later found his own car company, Porsche, which was created into its eternal context of today by his son, Ferry Porsche. His concept was a vehicle for the people, hence Volkswagen, people's car. He wanted something cheap and easy to operate, similar to that of the original Model T. And he thought of this in the 1930s. And by the 1940s, the concepts are created. Now, needless to say, he lost the war, they lost the plan, and if it wasn't for the British, the Beetle wouldn't be here. The British were the ones who'd found the factory and saw this amazing product and said, oh my God, this thing's like the original Model T. It's easy to fix. It's an entry-level product for anybody. 
its economy. It's cheap and easy to operate, and it's cheap for us to build in mass quantities. The Beetle was essentially the very first economy car for the masses, eventually being followed up by the Citroen 2CV, the Fiat Topolino, and then as we get further on down the road, the original Toyota Corolla. Back in those days, the Toyota Corona. Yes, today we look at Toyota and we see them in a completely different light. We see them as one of the top tier products from around the globe. Hell, they build products now, like the new Crown SUV, on the same scale as Rolls-Royce. Yes, they build a product similar to that of what Rolls-Royce builds in their hand-built factories. Toyota. Well, way back in the 60s, when a lot, a lot of people knew about the Japanese, you have to remember the Japanese after the, the fall of Nagasaki and Hiroshima due to the nuclear bombs dropped by the Americans had a lot less males to work. And for that, they get heavily into machinery and robotics. They learned how to build stuff with less people. So they were able to build vehicles quicker and faster than the American counterparts. And for that, they were able to build vehicles cheaper than the Americans. Similar to that, how the British turned the Volkswagen Beetle into the original people's car and Citroën turned the 2CV into the people's car of France. If you go back and you check out the original designs for the original Citroën 2CV, the back seats and hell, even the front seats, they had what they called the Farmer's Edition, which is the base model economy product. It essentially just had canvas benches in the front for you to sit on. That's it. Some tightrope and canvas. That's what you had to sit on. There was nothing amazing about it. It was as cheaply built as you possibly could. It was essentially a motor in the front, four wheels, and a steel cage. There were not a lot of fit and finish on the interior of the vehicle. But look at Citroen today. Building products like the DS. They're in the premium and luxury fields. And yet they got their start from essentially the most basic economy vehicle you can think of. But that economy vehicle just went on forever and ever like the Volkswagen Beetle and the Fiat Topolinos. These products were built to get people into vehicles. They were cheaply built and cheaply operational. Toyota did that. But Toyota put a Japanese spin on it. Introducing Kaizen to their production, they developed a way to be more economically viable in the production of their vehicles. Using less people but more quality. They built cheap vehicles in mass quantities, but as they sold more and more of these vehicles, they used the money from the sales of those vehicles and funneled it back into the company to build better quality vehicles. The Japanese took a page from the Americans, and the Americans took a page from the Germans. The Germans started the automobile production with the original Motzewagen from Benz. The original Benz Motzewagen is what started the automobile industry. Now, the original automobile industry goes all the way back to the 1700s with an original steam-powered tank for the French. But we're not going to get into that history today. That, that, that's for a different podcast and a different show. We're talking about economy-built vehicles. The Germans started the automobile industry. The Americans took a page out of that and added the moving assembly line to it. Now, the Japanese took a page from the Americans and said, we can do that, but we can do that on a better scale because we have a lot less men to build these cars for us in our nation. Sorry if I'm offensive to anybody, but if you check back in history, it really was wasn't, let's just say, the world was a little bit more sexist 
back in those days where men were the only ones able to do work. Well, the Japanese were the first to actually integrate more women into the workforce a lot quicker than the American counterparts because they needed people. What's the follow from the bombs of both Nagasaki and Hiroshima? They didn't have the male counterparts that they needed to build these vehicles. They had the women. But some of these vehicles were heavy and the parts were heavy to move around. So they got into machinery and robotics. They built better machines to build better machines. But they sold them in mass quantities to keep the price low. And as they got more and more people into them, even in more and more markets, like if you ask somebody about the original Toyota products in the 1960s, and let's just go right back to one of my favorite lines from Back to the Future 3. When Doc Brown is fixing the DeLorean, when it's in the cave after it's been sitting there for nearly 75 years, from 1885 to 1955, he says, here's the problem. This little part was made in Japan. Well, back in the 1950s, made in Japan was the equivalent of products made in China in the 90s and early 2000s. They were junk. They were garbage. Hell, even today, when we see products that say made in India, we think garbage. There are countries that started that way by mass producing junky products and funneling that money back into their companies. Now, needless to say, not every single company does this properly. Toyota did this properly. We're from the 60s and all the way up until the mid to late 80s. They funneled all of the sales of all of their cheaply built economy vehicles back into building better quality vehicles. And by the 1980s, so 20 years after reaching the American shores, their products started to become better quality than the American-made products that the American public loved. And by the 1980s, the Japanese began what they call the import crisis in America. Japan was able to build vehicles at cheaper rates and ship them out to America and sell them for less than American companies could sell them for. And they did this at a better quality. The quality built or build of vehicles in Japan was better than that on the American shores in the 1980s. But that was because the Japanese needed to compete. If they wanted to compete on a world stage, they had to do it and they had to find their way. So they used economy to build quality. Well, in the 1980s, it was actually the late 70s, but by the 1980s, two known vehicles as the Hyundai Excel and the Hyundai Pony reached our shores. And these crummy little vehicles, which started from a company who built a vehicle for their home nation in conjunction with Ford Motor Company, the original Hyundai Corona, which is essentially Ford product. This Hyundai product that we saw, the Excel and the Pony, were cheap, disposable vehicles. You bought them because they were dirt cheap. It was a brand new vehicle. And for about three to $4,000 in the 80s, this was cheap. This was entry level. This was below the entry point of every other major product out there. The Koreans had learned what the Japanese did. When they entered their marketplace in the 1960s, they built economy products and funneled that money, all the extra sales money, back into building quality products. They put it back into their business. Where the Americans had such a massive market and massive amount of market share over top of any other type of competition, and considering the fact they gobbled up all the competition to bring them whittle the entire industry down to just three companies, they didn't have to worry at all about anything else. People didn't care about quality in America because there was only three companies. Four, essentially, up until the 80s when we had American Motors. But you only had three main car companies. They built gas-guzzling pigs, which proved to be a major downfall when the gas crisis hit in the 70s. That gas crisis pushed the economy-built vehicles from Japan through the roof, and the Americans were left standing, holding their tailgate. They didn't know what to do. They never built cheap economy vehicles. Well, essentially, they did when they entered the automotive world, but they hadn't done it in decades. What were they to do? Well, they had to learn. And a lot of these companies got into bed with the Japanese, building products for the North American marketplace. And eventually, the two of them started opening up
putting up plants together in the U.S. when the American economy decided to start imposing more tariffs on Japanese-made products. Hence the reason why in the 80s, most Japanese products started to be built in North America with their luxury counterparts from Lexus, Infinity, and Acura being brought over from the Japanese marketplace due to these tariffs. This was in similar context to Hyundai Kia. Hyundai entered the market as an economy-made product in the 1980s, and by the late 90s, they were moving into products like the Hyundai XG350, a premium-styled vehicle competing in the same terms as Buicks, but was still sold at an economy price point for the premium marketplace, and its product was still built as an economy-based product because it was still essentially a cheap throwaway vehicle because it was so cheap to purchase, fixing or replacing things on it was worth more than buying a new one. That is what the Koreans love. The Japanese started building more quality into their products, and by the 1990s, quality was the name of the game for Japanese products. They outpaced their American counterparts, and hell, even the European counterparts. The Japanese learned that quality can sell, and quality built market share. Well, their American and European brethren did not understand this concept until the early 2000s when the market started crashing. In 2008, when the market crashed, there's a good reason why European and American car companies failed, but the Japanese counterparts did not. They built quality-issued products. So at a time when people couldn't afford to get into vehicles, the people who could afford to get in were looking for products that can last a long time. And knowing that buying your standard Ford, GM, or Chrysler Corporation product, your timeline was between 5 to 7 years and about 100,000 miles. Where your Japanese counterpart, its existence lay between 7 to 12 years and 200,000 miles. More people were likely to move into the quality nameplate. This was bad news for a newcomer, Kia, who was building economy products. And even by 2008, they were still building economy products. One of the major fallouts for the Kia Borrego was the fact that it was economy-built product name attached to a body-on-frame full-size SUV. And since full-size SUVs were already considered one of the biggest gas-guzzling pigs on the road, nobody was looking at an economy-built gas-guzzling pig. They didn't want something that cost them a fortune to fill up, and they didn't want something that cost them a fortune to fix. So products like that disappeared from our marketplace due to quality issues. And in 2008, Kia saw a step back. They entered the market in the late 90s with cheap, really garbage products. Like my little Kia Rio is a 2002. It's essentially from the very beginning of Kia, first generation Kia in North America. They were cheap economy products. And trust me, every time I see the cost of replacing some of the parts on this thing, I freak out. The starter on it is nearly the same price as that of a Mercedes S-Class. It's a fucking Kia. Brand new. My little Rio costs $6,000. Brand new. Yeah, six grand. It's a stick shift model, but I liked my little car, an oversized go-kart. I have to change the timing belt every seven years, guaranteed, or I'll blow the motor because it's an interference motor. It's built an economy scale. Everything is built as a disposable product in that vehicle. The aftermarket industry has been a lot better to it, building better quality products that have lasted longer for me, thank thankfully. But its entry-level Kia Rios were so cheap that when they died, people just literally threw them to the side and bought a new one. Economy vehicles are built to last 
last the average lease. And back in those days, four to five years was a standard lease rate. So as long as the vehicle lasted past that, like just past that, without any major issues, people would return to you to buy new ones. So Kia and Hyundai both learned from the Japanese that you need to funnel money back into quality. But their quality only came with quality through lease options because they knew the number one people buying their products were entry-level economy consumers. And these were the people who were more likely to lease products than finance or purchase. So they could build the biggest piece of crap vehicle as long as it lasted the length of the lease. Today, average leases go between six to eight years, putting a strain on both Kia and Hyundai and their economy-based products. Now, their products have to last even longer. But considering the fact that they've built an empire based off the cheaply built entry-level vehicles, they have a massive amount of market share in every single market they're in, and they can now use that money to build better quality product, and it has just hit the brick wall. It lasted. My Rio? Well, I only take it out in the summer, so it's about 120,000 kilometers on that car, and let's just say I've changed the timing belt in it four times, or three times, and nearly every time I bring it out, I have to do some massive amount of repair to it. It's an economy-based vehicle, and economy-based vehicles are still good for the marketplace, but today, there are not a lot of them. But the Chinese see that there's a massive market share in the North American and European markets for entry-level products. Countries like India and all of Africa still require economy-built vehicles. That's where a lot of these economy-based companies still build and sell vehicles, but there's a lot less regulations compared to North America and Europe. And whereas Kia and Hyundai both moved up the food chain and the, the amount of quality that they build into their vehicles, trust me, I still, I still don't trust them, the Chinese see this massive marketplace of economy-built vehicles and are now looking towards building plants in Mexico to supply the North American marketplace with entry-level economy-based products for the electric vehicle industry, the next power source in entry level, knowing that there are millions of people just in the United States alone that can't afford the average entry-level price of a new vehicle, which is nearly $40,000. These Chinese companies are now looking at the economy marketplace between fifteen dollars and $25,000 for entry-level products. And they want to sell to the North American marketplace because there are not a lot of companies that cater to this. Kia is one of the few that still caters for entry-level economy-based products in the North American and even European marketplaces. We need these economy cars. Sure, by reducing the economy car market, you can get millions of people off the road, but you're also making it that your public transit system now has to cater to those millions of people that are now off the road. Great news for public infrastructure, but when expenditures for public infrastructure for most governments around the world has been decreasing in the past few years, that's not a good thing. We still need the people on the road, and we still need our economy-based products. There's a reason why the Kia Rio still ranks as one of the top entry-level products in every major nation around the globe. It's because it's still sold at an entry-level price point. And hell, it's one of the few vehicles you could still get with a stick shift in just about every single market, including the United States. Economy needs to be there. We all need economy-based products because we all need the people at the bottom end of the food chain to be able to have that ability to be mobile. Not everybody wants to be mobile, but there are people in the bottom tier of the food chain who want to be mobile. And with, a, a, sure, a smaller amount of disposable income at hand, they may not use as much as middle-income earners who are able to afford the $46,000 entry-level price 
for vehicles today, but these people still have disposable income they want to spend and they still want to see the world while on wheels. So until they make an economy-based autonomous vehicle, we still need economy-based production vehicles. The rise from economy to quality has been showcased to us from a multitude of automobile companies, from Hyundai to Toyota to Volkswagen and Ford. They all got their start in economy-based products. Today, they build better quality products and some of them are top-tier quality products. But they all started at the bottom tier of the marketplace. Entering the market at the top tier may seem like you're going to make even more money, but you have to make sure you build a quality product. If you can't afford the quality, then put it into economy and use your economies of scale to build your product for the marketplace. So do we need the economy marketplace in the automotive world? Yes, we do. There's a lot of people out there that still require entry-level products. And even though we're becoming a more urbanized globe, there are still a lot of suburban and rural towns all across the world, inclusive of even places like India, Africa, extensively, South America, and even in the United States. There are rural cities and towns who require entry-level products to get their people around because they don't have the money to put towards proper infrastructure. And forcing everybody to live in these massive megacities isn't the right idea. I'm sorry. Spreading out our population across a massive area is a lot better than centralizing it into one solid core. You want proof of that? Go to Australia, where most of their population, they are nearly 90% urbanized. Not a lot of rural towns. Which means they have a lot of vast open space with nothing. Or when you travel across the United States, there's not a lot of places like that that have nothing because they have people everywhere. All thanks to economy-based products. We all need them. And even though they get thrown away, all we have to do is regulate the way we throw them away. Make them more recyclable like they do in Europe. And the economy-based entry into the automotive world could become one of the biggest players for getting the world back onto wheels. So yes, we do need the economy-based car companies. So if you like this podcast, please like, share, or comment about it. And at the bottom of the screen, please like and share it with all your friends, family, acquaintances. Send this to your boss. Piss them off on a Friday afternoon. Send it to them and say, hey, I have to drive the economy-based vehicle because unlike you, you don't pay me enough to drive the standardized product. I got to buy a fucking Kia because you won't pay me to drive the Toyota. <laughs> seriously, send it to your boss. Put that in the email and say, Everett J says, get me out of the economy. Now, seriously, like put that in. Hashtag Everett J. It'd be good for a laugh. Hey, you might get a race. And if you do, let me know. I'll even add that underneath this podcast. So like, share, or comment about this on any of the major social feeds, streaming sites, or even on our main website and join our emailing list to find out about more products coming out and new podcasts when they arrive from the Autolux podcast. And after that, stop by the website, check out the ratings, check out the reviews, and find new companies. Find out which companies build economy cars on our Corporate Links websites. We do break down all major players in the automotive world for this, from corporate pages to sports cars, economy vehicles, everything is all outlined on the Autolux Corporate Links website page. All from the Autolux.net website. The Autolux podcast has been brought to you by Ecom Entertainment Group and distributed by Podbeam.com. If you'd like to get in touch with either Everett J, the host of the Autolux podcast, and the owner and creator of both the Autolux.net website and all social media forms, send him an email over at email at Autolux.net. So for myself, Everett J, the Autolux, and Ecom Entertainment Group, strap yourself in for this one fun wild ride that economy cars may soon take us on.